In February of this year, 2013, I was invited to be a speaker at a Bible conference held by Church of the Redeemer in Mesa, Arizona. The topic for the weekend was titled, Theistic Evolution, A Sinful Compromise. During that conference, I gave a series of four lectures. There was far more material that I could have dealt with in just four lectures. Since that time, I've expanded those initial four lectures into a total of about 14 or 15 messages, of which you are listening to one of these. I encourage those who are listening to these messages to visit my publishing website at triumphantpublications.com. And there you can read a free version based on all of these messages. The messages are also being compiled into a book that will be published sometime in mid-June of 2013, titled Theistic Evolution, A Sinful Compromise. This book will be uh, available also to read on my website, uh, and you can go to the website and simply click on the appropriate box titled Theistic Evolution, A Sinful Compromise Transcript, and there you can read the book for free. Also on the publishing website, I have listed links to all the audio messages uh, that I have made on sermonaudio.com under the general topic, Theistic Evolution, A Sinful Compromise. May the Lord bless you as you listen and or read about this very dangerous view that is gaining ground, unfortunately, among certain churches and institutions. This is part one of another compromiser, uh, another theistic evolutionist by the name of Dr. Greg Davidson. Just prior to the 2012 meeting of the PCA General Assembly, as some in the PCA stated it, the blogosphere went nuclear with the news that the General Assembly was going to allow two men, Dr. Greg Davidson and Dr. Ken Wabamuth, from the Solid Rock Lectures Organization, to come and give a seminar for the delegates attending. The goal of the seminar was to give evidence why an old earth view is supposedly a plausible interpretation of Genesis. The goal was not to convince young earth creationists of the old earth position, but only to, as they put it, remove a stumbling block to the faith that requires belief in a young earth. Sorry, but I find their goal to be somewhat deceptive. Of course they wanted to persuade delegates to their point of view. Why be there? If this was not the desired goal, why be there? Moreover, it was disturbing because one of the speakers, Dr. Greg Davidson, has written a book titled, When Faith and Science Collide, A Biblical Approach to Evaluating Evolution and the Age of the Earth. I have read Davidson's book, and it is very unsettling. I consider it a travesty that he would even have been invited in this book, he is uh, supposedly giving a biblical approach to evaluating evolution. He is a committed evolutionist and openly critical of a creationist position. In fact, he says that a creationist position is detrimental to witnessing to atheistic evolutionists, an obstacle in their path to faith, he says. Davidson is so bold as to assert that an evolutionist view of the origin of life is a wonderful demonstration of God's workmanship that glorifies God and enhances our appreciation of his creation. Dr. Davidson and the Biologos Foundation both tout their views as magnanimous positions that give praise to God. As I stated in an earlier lecture, Biologos sponsors seminars that they term Theology of Celebration Workshops. These theistic evolutionists want to assume some high moral ground by referring to organic evolution as God's marvelous display of his creative work. And they want to picture young earth creationists such as I am as naive, 
misled Christians who have completely misread the Bible. In fact, Dr. Davidson accuses some of us in this camp as cultic in the way that we seek to oppose evolutionary thought. I believe the desired and ultimate agenda is set forth in Dr. Davidson's book, from which I will give multiple examples. As it turned out, only Dr. Davidson could attend the PCA General Assembly. Dr. Davidson reminded attendees that the seminar was on the aids of the earth and not on evolution. For those wanting to know his view on evolution, he directed them to his book. Well, in his book, as I will show, he is most decidedly an evolutionist. Hence, his invitation was tantamount to letting the fox into the hen house to begin the destruction. I believe that Dr. Davidson was the unwitting agent of Satan in that seminar where the great deceiver whispered in the ears of all those attending, Has God really said? I am sure Dr. Davidson would view my previous comment as a typical example of us creationists in our cultic way of dealing with evolutionists. But I don't back away from my comment in the least, because I'm convinced that evolution is one of the great lies of the devil, and it does as much as anything to undermine the faith once delivered to the saints. It is true that not all those who believe in an old earth, or what is commonly known as the day-age view of the days of creation, are evolutionists. However, it is one of the places where the downward spiral begins. Why would one want to have a view that the days of creation are not normal solar days unless it's an attempt somehow to reconcile modern science with the Bible? Defending an old earth view presents all sorts of exegetical problems, not to speak of tremendous problems with the biological sciences. For example, if we make the days of creation long periods of duration consisting of millions of years, we have God creating on the third day the dry land with vegetation and fruit-bearing trees. Then on the fourth day, we have God creating the sun, the moon, and the stars to be signs for seasons, days, and years. Biologically, vegetation needs the light of the sun to produce chlorophyll, an essential part of plant life. We cannot imagine millions of years passing without the sun providing sunlight for plant growth. This is one reason why the day age theory has huge problems, but there is no problem if we simply accept the plain reading of Scripture, understanding these days to be typical solar days of 24 hours. Plants could survive for 24 hours without sunlight, but not for millions of years. Moreover, the old earth view would have death occurring on an ongoing basis over these millions of years. This is why those who are touting an old earth view struggle to explain death in the creation prior to man's fall as a sin. They realize that something must give. Hence, some want to argue that there was death in the plant and animal world, but no death in man until the fall. But the hold to this view necessitates all kinds of exegetical gymnastics to teach this. All could be avoided if men simply accepted prima facie, the Genesis account of the days of creation, as six ordinary days. I believe that those who gave permission to Dr. Davidson to hold this seminar at the PCA 2012 General Assembly did a great disservice to their denomination and opened the door for further deterioration. Surely, someone knew of Dr. Davidson's position on evolution prior to the invitation. Surely someone knew of his avowed commitment to viewing man as having descended from ape-like creatures. In another lecture, I will discuss the PCA creation report of 2000. I will discuss its weakness and how this report has opened the door for men like Greg Davidson, Tim Keller, and Ron Chung to tout their views unrestricted in their respective communities of influence. At least the PCA creation report, while granting a certain latitude in understanding the days of creation, which I view as the big weakness, it did, however, affirm 
that Adam and Eve were not the product of evolution from lower forms of life. If this is an essential part of the report that was adopted by the General Assembly, then why was Dr. Davidson, a committed evolutionist, who has written a book defending the evolution of man, why was he allowed to even conduct a seminar? As we shall see, Davidson's belief in an old earth view is very much intertwined with his commitment to organic evolution. From reports of those who attended the PCA 2012 General Assembly Seminar, Davidson wanted to emphasize that there can be a crisis for young believers once they understand the supposed great evidence for an old earth view. They could experience what he said, a crisis of faith, and he wants to avert such a crisis. In other words, Dr. Davidson is making a large assumption that the evidence for an old earth is somehow a fact of science. He is assuming that all those who were raised to believe in a young earth will be shattered once they learn the scientific truth about old earth. I totally disagree with Dr. Davidson. The crisis that can be presented to these young people is the fact that there are those like Dr. Davidson who want to reinterpret the Bible in light of modern science. If there is a crisis, it's produced by men like Dr. Davidson. It is men who challenge the plain reading of Scripture, who view science as somehow an equal authority with Scripture. Even though they say they hold to the authority of Scripture, now these men may deny my previous statement, insisting that they do not undermine scriptural authority. But the reality is, they do, and I can prove it. They all say that modern science is forcing the church to reconsider its exegesis. I have read many of their arguments. These compromisers want to say that the biblical writers never expected to be taken literally. But why not? The days of creation cannot be solar days, they say, the evolutionists, that is. The chronology of the Bible cannot be complete, but there must be some gaps in it which would allow millions of years to be undocumented in Scripture. So the plain reading of Scripture and the interpreting, the interpreting of Scripture by Scripture is set aside simply because we must find a way to reconcile the Bible with science. Pseudoscience, which is what I call evolutionary thinking, is in the driver's seat, not the Scripture alone. Again, the problem is not science per se, but a certain philosophy of science that adopts a uniformitarian view of geology and an evolutionary view of the origin of life. Young earth creationism is not the bad science, but it's the old earth advocates and evolutionists who are guilty of doing bad science. The audience at that seminar that Dr. Davidson was conducting was allowed to ask some questions at the conclusion. One question and answer was quite illuminating, I understand. The question was, did Dr. Davidson believe that Adam was specially created and direct, directly created by God from the dust, or if Adam was a hominid, that is, an ape-like creature, adopted by God? Before answering, Dr. Davidson said that he hoped that his answer to the question would not cause people to write off the evidence that he had just given in his seminar. Obviously, he was preparing the audience for news that many might not find uh, that many might find upsetting. In his answer, he said he did not see any difference between an atom specially created by God from the dust and an atom as a hominid adopted by God and then given a soul. Either way, Adam was the first human and father of mankind. In other words, Dr. Davidson admitted to being an evolutionist who thinks that Adam and Eve were descended from ape-like creatures. The last question asked of Dr. Davidson was whether the session of his church allows him to teach an old earth view. He said that he was not currently under discipline and that he's never been asked to teach on the subject. 
So, in his book, When Faith and Science Collide, what does Dr. Davidson actually believe? The purpose of his book is how to reconcile Christianity with evolutionary science. I'm very appreciative of Rachel Miller, who was the first to bring to my attention Dr. Davidson's book. Rachel has written a fine review of Davidson's book on her blog site, Rachel Miller, A Daughter of the Reformation, When Faith and Science Collide, a review of Dr. Greg Davidson's book, posted on her blog site June 7, 2012. In his book, Davidson tells an apparent fictitious story of an unbeliever, Carl, who's been given a book by a young earth creationist by the name of Doug. Doug tells Carl that Genesis must be a literal account. Carl is dismayed by the bad science that Carl gives to him and decides, or that Doug gives to him, and decides that Christianity must not have the God of truth. Davidson then says, that the clash between the Bible and modern science is not just unnecessary, but harmful to the cause of Christ. I have already commented, it's not the young earth creationists that are doing the bad science, but it's those who advocate an evolutionary scheme. This is what's so disturbing. In my earlier lectures, I went to great lengths to demonstrate the absurdity of macroevolution from a scientific perspective, even quoting Darwin and other committed evolutionists who understood the great problems with evolutionary thinking. Davidson wants to maintain that the Bible is not with the Scripture, but with a faulty interpretation of the Bible. This faulty interpretation is the real stumbling block. According to Davidson, it is this faulty interpretation that is guilty of doing bad science and bad theology. I mentioned in previous lectures that the debate between creationists and theistic evolutionists will ultimately come down to hermeneutics, how we are to interpret faithfully the Word of God. Davidson writes in his book, quote, To avoid confusion over terminology, we need to be clear about what is meant by the word literal in this context. Some conservative Bible scholars define the word literal as the intended meaning taken within the context. In this sense, literal is essentially synonymous with literary, where forms of literature, figures of speech, context, and the author's intent are all taken into consideration to arrive at the appropriate interpretation. This is an in Unfortunate definition that has served to confuse more than clarify, for by this definition, biblical poetry and allegory are correctly interpreted in a literal fashion, which means to interpret them figuratively. My usage of literal throughout the book conforms to the more common usage, where a literal interpretation is one that meets the strict definition of the words without figurative secondary meaning and without requiring additional context to understand. End of quote from Davidson. Indeed, our approach to any biblical subject is governed by our hermeneutical principles. The previously mentioned quote from Davidson shows serious flaws in Davidson's hermeneutical approach. In fact, it is a fundamental problem with his entire approach to the subject matter. We do have to carefully define our terms, particularly what we mean by the word literal. I and others have no problem with understanding that a literal meaning of Scripture does encompass figures of speech, context, and author's intent with word usage. And yes, there are passages that are meant to literally be taken figuratively. Davidson's views that such an approach as a great error. He views it as unacceptable. His understanding and use of the term literal is seriously flawed. Note that in his last sentence, Davidson does not believe that additional context for understanding a passage is involved in a literal understanding of texts. Davidson stresses that we must arrive or that we must strive 
to understand the author's intended meaning. In principle, I obviously, obviously agree with this, but this is where Davidson commits enormous hermeneutical errors. His interpretation of man's creation is a fanciful and ridiculous one as I have ever read. Later in this message, I will point out this grievous interpretation. Davidson raises an interesting question when he says, quote, How do we know when we should hold fast to our traditional interpretation of Scripture in the face of all opposition? And when should we allow new discoveries to shape our understanding? Must traditional interpretations of Scripture capitulate to science every time a new theory comes along? Surely not. But how do we make these assessments? End of quote. We shall see that while seemingly Davidson does not want to make Scripture dependent upon scientific discoveries, he will nonetheless repeatedly violate this notion. This is one more area that reveals Davidson's flawed approach to hermeneutics. He states in his book, quote, the vast number of Christian denominations in existence is a testament to how often people reach different conclusions while all claiming reliance on the Spirit. God's Spirit does not lie or mislead, but our sensitivity to His working is imperfect. This book was written on the conviction that God, who created both the universe and the Bible, has given us both His Spirit and the ability to reason through a series of logical questions to address the issue. End of quote. There is no question that Christians need the illumination of the Holy Spirit to accurately understand the meaning of Scripture. But there is a significant problem in the way Davidson expresses his governing conviction in writing his book. He says that God has given both his Spirit and our reasoning capacity to address issues. What Davidson has failed to mention is the vital connection of the Holy Spirit's relationship with Scripture. The Holy Spirit never guides us independent of the Word of God. Jesus made this very clear when he said in John 16:13, But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. And how did Jesus define truth? In the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed to his Heavenly Father, recorded in John 17, 17, Sanctify them in thy truth. Thy word is truth. Our ability to reason through a series of logical questions can never be used to violate the plain meaning of Scripture. This is precisely where Davidson gets into trouble throughout his book. His reasoning based upon scientific evidence supporting evolution becomes the guiding principle in the interpretation of Scripture. As I will point out later, his interpretation of the creation or the evolution of Adam is absolutely incredible. While affirming his belief in a historical Adam and in the authority of Scripture, Davidson writes, quote, the study of God's natural creation, by virtue of its reflection on its creator, will occasionally prove useful in discerning the best interpretation of Scripture when more than one interpretation is plausible. It is my conviction that good science and good theology will never rest permanently at odds with one another. Apparent contradictions may arise, but ultimately God's natural revelation, the material universe, will be found in agreement with his special revelation, Scripture. There is a growing body of people who share this conviction, who have been convinced that the scientific evidence for evolution in an old earth is unassailable. End of quote. The only correct thing that Davidson said in the quote that I just gave is that good science and good theology will never be at odds with one another. The problem is, is that Davidson believes that scientific evidence for evolution in an old earth is unassailable. That's the problem. Darwinism, is that supposed to be unassailable? 
meaning that no amount of biblical exegesis and no amount of evidence gathered by young earth creationism can assail the bastion of evolutionary thought. A philosophy of life rooted in outright rebellion against God is viewed as an unassailable dogma. Interestingly, Darwin, Huxley, and others hoped that one day there would be documentary proof for evolutionary theories. They still don't exist. But Dr. Davidson thinks that the verdict has been in ever since Darwin's time. Moreover, just like Tim Keller, Ron Chun, and those at BioLogos, Davidson gives feigned allegiance to the authority of Scripture. Yes, it is a feigned allegiance because the proof of one's allegiance to sola scriptura is one's affirmation that Scripture, and Scripture alone is authoritative, dependent on no external criteria that sits in judgment upon God's holy word. Someone committed to the sole authority of Scripture would never say what Dr. Davidson says. Natural revelation does not provide the hermeneutical tool for sound biblical exegesis. Scripture is capable of interpreting Scripture, and those advocating a literal six-day, 24-hour period and an acceptance of the biblical chronology do just that. They let Scripture define the meaning of days, dust, and the prop and the scope of Noah's flood. In his book, Dr. Davidson asks a series of questions such as, 1. Does the infallibility of Scripture rest on a literal interpretation of the verses in question? 2. Does the science conflict with the intended message of the Scripture? And 3. Is the science credible? The problem with his questions should be readily apparent. Again, why should science be the guiding light in determining the meaning of Scripture? This assaults the integrity of Scripture. And then, who determines the credibility of the science? Greg Davidson is already biased towards an evolutionary perspective, over against young earth creationist ones. In reality, creationist understandings make more scientific sense than evolutionary models. For one, most creationist models work from the assumption that the days of creation are just that, ordinary days. Most creationists accept the universality of Noah's flood simply because God's word said it was universal. Tim Keller, Ron Chun, and others deny the universality of the flood because they say the scientific evidence refutes it. Creationists believe in the universality of Noah's flood because the Bible says it was universal. Additionally, flood geology is much better scientific explanation of Earth's geology than Darwinian uniformitarianism, simply because this is what we should expect, seeing that true science is never at odds with Scripture. Davidson's bias towards evolutionary views is quite explicit. He says that science teaches us that life began on Earth 3.5 billion years ago. Even though scientists are not cognizant of how life began from non-living material and how everything evolved from single-cell organisms to man, Davidson thinks that there is a plausible synthesis with Scripture. This synthesis is... The Bible says that God commanded the earth to, to bring forth, and it did. Science says that man was formed from the same dust of the earth as all other creatures. In other words, science provides us with the accurate understanding of the mechanism of creation, according to Davidson. Again, it is not biblical exegesis that is in the driver's seat. It is the scientific views often postulated by unbelieving men. From the following quotes, we see Davidson's feigned commitment to Scripture's authority. Scientific discoveries play a more important role than the Bible's own testimony. Davidson writes, quote, The idea of reevaluating long-standing scriptural interpretation because of scientific evidence 
was unsettling to 17th century Christians and continues to be unsettling today because of the sense that any reevaluation driven by science is, quote, giving ground. There are at least two underlying reasons for this feeling. We tend to think of the Bible as being a self-contained document requiring no outer source than God's illumination for understanding. At one very important level, this is true. The central message intended for all times and all believers must be understandable apart from scientific observations only available after the Renaissance or the nuclear age. We should expect, then, that a thorough study of nature will occasionally give us previously unrecognized insights into the scriptures themselves. Far from giving up ground, these new insights can be truly thought of as a newly plowed soil, gained ground. End of quote. From this comment, Davidson merely gives lip service to scriptural authority. Yes, it is quite unsettling to me and many other committed Christians who champion sola scriptura to reevaluate biblical exegesis in light of supposed scientific discoveries. Davidson cannot be more wrong when he thinks that God's self-contained scripture can be further illumined by man's, man's scientific uh, postulations. Natural revelation is not a co-authority with scripture. They are not equal. Being in the PCA, Greg Davidson should understand that the constitutional document for his denomination is supposed to be the Westminster Confession of Faith. To refute Davidson's views, I simply quote what the Westminster Confession says at chapter 1, section 9, which reads, The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself, and therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scriptures, which is not manifold, but one, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. End of quote from the Confession. The Bible does not need modern scientific views to provide a proper understanding of its teachings. Note that the Westminster Divines said that any question of the true and full sense of any scripture is to be searched and known by other places in the Bible. To purport that an independent source, science, can give the proper meaning of a biblical text is to deny Scripture's authority. I'm sorry, but Dr. Davidson has betrayed sola scriptura. Please note what's in the driver's seat with this quote from Davidson. It says, quote, So where does this leave us when considering the age of the earth or evolution? Are those standing against the prevailing scientific wisdom fighting the good fight? Or are they building the same faulty construction as our unfortunate 18th century holdouts described above? End of quote. What prevailing scientific wisdom is Davidson referring to? It's not the wisdom of creationists who begin with scripture. It's the scientific wisdom of the world of which the vast majority is agnostic or atheistic. The dominant view in the biological community is that of evolution. Dr. Davidson, I don't think, fully understands or appreciates the doctrine of total depravity. While unbelievers can make valid scientific discoveries from time to time, particularly when they presuppose a world of order, their worldviews are corrupt. As I have pointed out, in other lectures, evidence is never interpreted in a neutral way. The unbeliever cannot fully think accurately. Sin and Satan has blinded his mind. The unbeliever will always interpret evidence in light of his governing presuppositions and worldview. Davidson makes some key hermeneutical errors in his dealing with the genealogies of the Bible. He does sense the problem of addressing the genealogies of Genesis 5 and 11. If one is going to maintain an old earth view, Davidson writes, quote, if the, if the genealogies of Genesis 5 and 11 
represent a complete list of generations. This places the creation of Adam at about 4,000 B.C., with the total age of the creation at about 6,000 years. However, as mentioned in chapter 3, the father of can also mean the ancestor of, meaning that generations may be skipped without error. End of quote. For a further discussion of the accuracy of the biblical genealogies of Genesis 5 and 11, I refer my listeners to my second lecture pertaining to the meaning of the days of creation and Bible chronology. Davidson thinks that a 6,000-year-old date of creation is ludicrous. But why does he think this? It's because science supposedly says it's ludicrous. Well, at least the prevailing opinion of scientists who are not Christians think it's ludicrous. Scientists who are creationists, they don't have a problem with a 6,000-year-old universe. The Westminster Divines had no problem with Usher's chronology that held to a 4004 B.C. date for creation. The great Reformed commentator Matthew Henry had no problem with a 4004 B.C. date for creation. Just look at what he posted in the margin of his commentary on Genesis 1-3. through It says, before Christ, 4004 B.C. Davidson thinks he has a good argument for viewing the genealogies of Genesis 5 and 11 is not complete because of the gaps in the genealogies of Matthew and Luke that trace the ancestors of Christ. The reasoning is seriously flawed by Davidson. In my second lecture, I refer to the monumental work of Floyd Nolan Jones titled The Chronology of the Old Testament. Davidson has no exegetical basis whatsoever to maintain that there are skipped generations in Genesis 5 and 11. I quote Floyd Nolan Jones at this point. Jones says, quote, As demonstrated heretofore, the father, ancestor's name, is mathematically interlocked to the chosen descendant. Hence, no gap of time or generation is possible. In such an event, the position number of the patriarch may not represent the actual number of people as much as number of generations or the number of succeeding descendants who so obtained the inheritance. Regardless, it has been demonstrated that no time has been forfeited. End of quote. In discussing the differences between the Matthew and Luke genealogies with the Genesis account, Dr. Jones states, quote, It is the Genesis accounts only which provide any numeric data containing, as they do, birth and death records. Neither Matthew or Luke offers its readers this information, thus demonstrating that it was not the Holy Spirit's intent to rewrite portions of the Genesis registers. The purpose for the genealogical accounts given through these two evangelists must thus be seen to be different from that of the Genesis record as given by Moses. The New Testament registers were given to certify the messianic lineage of Christ Jesus and so establish his credentials and claim to the throne. End of quote. Dr. Jones mentions that in Matthew 1.8, there are three kings of Judah missing in the genealogy between Jehoram and Uzziah. The three missing kings are Ahaziah, Joash, and Amaziah. Dr. Jones rightly observes that there is a very good theological reason for Matthew not mentioning them. These three kings were notoriously known for their idolatry. Dr. Jones observes, quote, The Old Testament testifies quite honestly that these three men ruled over the kingdom of Judah and records their significant deeds, but God has seen fit to let all succeeding generations know how seriously he viewed these acts and the lineage of his only begotten son, by their removal at the introduction of the New Testament, the time of the long-awaited Messiah, end of quote. Davidson wants to make a big deal over the fact that Matthew 1.17 states that there are three sets of 14 generations, totaling 42 generations from David to Jesus. However, only 41 names are listed. 
Davidson does not see an error in Scripture. He merely emphasizes that the main intent of Matthew was not the number of generations, but the fact that Jesus was a legitimate descendant of David. While Davidson is correct so far, he commits his grievous error by his application or his reasoning conclusion. If there was a gap in Matthew's genealogy, then there must be a gap in the genealogies of Genesis 5 and 11, so reasons Davidson. Floyd Nolan Jones, however, makes this comment on Matthew 117. Jones states, quote, Two further omission or gap problems which are looked upon as inaccuracies by the vast majority of scholars are found in the 17th verse of the first chapter of Matthew. The first is that Matthew is deemed by most to be saying that there are three sets of 14 generations listed from verse 2 through verse 16. Hence, there should be 42 generations or names included in these passages, and yet there are only 41. However, the conclusion that a generation has been omitted is due to a faulty perception and is totally unwarranted. Truly, there are but 41 names given. Nevertheless, the 17th verse does not say there are 42 names or generations present. It says that there are three sets of 14. It must be pointed out that, technically speaking, there were but 14 actual generations between David and Josiah. Dr. Jones mentions that there were 17 monarchs between David and Josiah. But it is misleading to insist that there were 17 generations between them, not just 14. King Abijah reigned only three years. King Ahaziah reigned only one year. And King Ammon reigned only two years. Noah emphasizes that it is unwarranted to say that these short reigns constituted a generation. Noah emphasizes that from Matthew 1.17, David is counted twice, once with the patriarchs and again with the kings. Thus, there are 14 generations in each grouping, but only 41 total generations or names listed. I have mentioned all of this genealogical detailed information in order to show that Greg Davidson's contention that there are gaps in the records of Genesis and 5 and 11 because there are supposed gaps in Matthew and Luke is without exegetical merit. This great error stems from what he has affirmed as a guiding principle. Newly discovered scientific discoveries are legitimate sources for guiding us in our correct understanding and reevaluation of our interpretations of Scripture. Because of his a priori commitment to evolutionary thought, Davidson has made serious hermeneutical errors. It is Davidson who imposes his bias upon Scripture, not creationists. There is no question of Dr. Davidson's commitment to macroevolution, meaning that all life forms evolved from simple, single-celled organisms throughout millions of years. He accepts all of the presuppositions and arguments of the evolutionists in terms of their so-called scientific findings. Davidson wants to maintain the science of evolution over the non-Christian agnostic and atheistic views held by many evolutionists. In other words, Davidson wants to accept the evolutionists' conclusions, but within the framework of God doing his creative work through the mechanism of evolution. The following quotes from Davidson's book demonstrate his commitment to evolutionary thought. First, Davidson's faulty hermeneutic is readily apparent in his interpretation of Genesis 1, 11-12, which reads in part, Then God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants, yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit. And the earth brought forth vegetation. Davidson argues that the phrase, From the earth, is a clear indication of the evolutionary process that God set in motion. Rather than seeing that the plain meaning of the text is that God instantaneously created vegetation that sprouted from the earth, he sees evolution as the mechanism. And so we see his bias is clearly seen in his interpretation of Scripture. 
Davidson is clearly a Darwinian in his understanding of how new species develop. He writes, quote, The process by which certain traits are perpetuated within a population of organisms while other traits disappear is known as natural selection. If a population of organisms remains well mixed, the whole population changes over time. If portions of the population are separated by geographical barriers or as a result of developing differing preferences for food sources or mate characteristics, the subpopulations begin to change independently and can eventually give rise to separate species. End of quote. I simply refer my readers to an earlier quote in this message, where Darwin admitted that he could not prove this at all. He could not prove what Davidson says Darwin believed. Keep in mind that we're not referring to the notion of speciation, where there's a diversification within a biblical kind. Darwin's theory, which Greg Davidson accepts, is that though is that through countless generations, enough changes occurred to bring about entirely new species, meaning that fish gave rise to amphibians, amphibians to reptiles, reptiles to birds and mammals, and eventually certain mammals gave rise to man. According to Davidson, we should not argue with the prevailing scientific wisdom a wisdom that assumes life originated from non-living uh, matter. In his book, Davidson has a table showing the synthesis of evolution with Scripture. This is an example of how he interprets the Bible in light of his supposedly evolutionary scientific data. In other words, it's allowing science to reinterpret the Bible for us, which Davidson says you've got to do in the modern age. So on one side of his table, he has the Bible. For example, man was created from the dust of the earth, Genesis 2-7. In response to that, he says, this is how it should be interpreted. Man was created through the successive evolution of various life forms, ultimately derived from non-living earth materials, dust of the earth. He also has on one side of his table, Adam and Eve gave rise to all mankind. And then his scientific explanation of that statement is, genetic studies suggest that all humanity can be traced to at least a common mother. And then on the Bible side of his table, he has the first humans lived in the Middle East near the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, part of the Fertile Crescent, Genesis 2.24. And then his science side of the table, he says, the oldest modern man fossils come from the Middle East, Eastern Europe, and Africa. And then on the Bible side of his table, he has Cain raised crops and Abel tended herds, Genesis 4.2. And on his science side of the table, he says, earliest evidence of agriculture is found in the Fertile Crescent. Now, it would be unfair to call Davidson a full-fledged deist. But he does exhibit one aspect of deism when he states, quote, Christians and non-Christians alike are too quick to assume that supernatural and natural driving forces are mutually exclusive. If natural selection is a real driving force, there is no reason to believe that it is not one of many natural forces designated by an awesome supernatural creator. End of quote. In Davidson's thinking, God is not seen as one who specially creates any life forms. God is viewed as one who set in motion certain natural laws that allows life to form from non-living materials. Davidson even argues for an evolution that entails randomness, chance that is, in the evolution of life. Davidson writes, quote, One may object and point out that words like random can be found frequently in every textbook about evolution. While this is true, it does not follow that it is undirected. We freely speak of the role of the dice as being random. Do we think it is unguided as well? Perhaps, unless we remember Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but its very decision is from the Lord. 
Davidson says, random is a scientific word meaning we cannot predict the outcome using scientific tools. It does not rule out supernatural guidance any more than the random nature of a dice roll rules out God's ability to predetermine the result. As a science, evolution is merely the name given to a study seeking to fit pieces of the life history puzzle together in the most sensible way. Rather than defining evolution as Darwinism, evolution should be defined as the name man is given to the study of what God's creativity looks like. God does not guide, mimic, prod, or adjust evolution as if it has an independent force that God must reign in. God creates. Evolution is merely the physical, chemical, and biological description of what the creation looks like. The attack based on probability calculations is generally two, a two-step approach. The first step focuses on the probability that randomness, association of atoms, or simple molecules can give rise to life. The second step then focuses on the time required to ensure that such an improbable event will occur. To help the reader understand how improbable such an outcome would be, analogies are often offered suggesting that the odds are similar to a tornado striking a junkyard and leaving behind a functioning Boeing 747 airplane, or to a chimp randomly typing a perfect set of the works of Shakespeare. This is followed with a second argument that even the great depth of time believed by secular scientists is insufficient to accomplish this. End of quote from Davidson. Amazingly, Davidson is going to scientifically seek to defend the random formation of life out of non-living material. He begins by attacking the two-fold arguments put, by, put forth by creationists that are mentioned in the previous quote. Davidson writes, To understand what is wrong with the first argument, we will conduct a similar mathematical exercise using the formation of salt crystals. Consider a one-liter container filled with seawater, half of a two-liter soft drink bottle. If we add some energy and begin to evaporate the water, what are the odds that a single tiny crystal of pure table salt will form? If we continue this, the chances of getting a single tiny uh, halite crystal works out to be 1 out of 10 to the 640th some odd power. What is left out is that all particles are not the same. Different atoms, ions, and molecules have God-given natural affinities for other specific types of atoms, ions, and molecules that result in association that are not dependent on chance encounters of all the right ingredients in just the right place at one time. Sodium and chloride have a natural affinity for each other that results in preferential bonding between these ion and exclusions of others. The result is salt. The probability arguments against the appearance of life from non-living materials likewise ignore natural affinities between scientific molecules. Formation of life does not depend on the random association of millions of atoms in just the right arrangement at one time. The way God made things, there is a healthy measure of self-assembly that takes place. Add to this the near certainty that the simplest replicating molecule developed in stages rather than all at once, and the improbability is not merely as large. End of quote from Davidson. Wow. Davidson's argument reminds me of Dr. Grant's comment in the movie Jurassic Park upon discovering that the dinosaurs had laid eggs that had hatched even though the scientists had engineered in their cloning technique for all the dinosaurs to be females so there would be no reproduction. Upon seeing the broken eggs and dinosaur tracks, Dr. Grant exclaims with this look of astonishment, Life finds a way. In the movie, the scientists had used the DNA from amphibians to clone the dinosaurs, not realizing that amphibians can change sex at times. Hence, life finds a way. Males came into existence, and bingo, 
Jurassic Park was now going to be a park of horror as the dinosaurs sought to dine on all the guests brought to the park. And to answer the second objection of creationists regarding the virtual impossibility of a chance formation of life from non-living matter which would require enormous amounts of time, Davidson counters by saying, quote, Vast time allows for more attempts, but it's not a requirement for success in any respect. What this means is that the age of the universe is largely irrelevant to the question of whether an improbable event would have occurred, particularly if God predetermined it to be so. If the landing of the coin is in God's hand, as it says in Proverbs 16.33, how much more so in the beginning of life, end of quote. One even wonders why Dr. Davidson even wants to bring God into the process at all. He does so because he's a professing Christian. We must remember that Davidson is not arguing that God somehow supernaturally interjects some miraculous ability to direct the process. No, he says that the randomness of the evolutionary process is built into the nature by God. It is evident that his view of God's providence over the natural realm is the inherent processes that God built into nature. And that's where his views are similar to the deist argument. Please note that carefully that Davidson wants to refer to the randomness of nature as what God's creativity looks like. I direct my listeners to my first lecture where I discuss the biblical meaning of the words create or created. I am not exhausted in giving all the usages of the Hebrew word bara. But let's just take a look at two passages. Genesis 5, 1 through 2, and Psalm 148, verses 1 through 5. Genesis 5, 1 through 2 reads, quote, This is the book of the generations of Adam, in the day when God created man. He made him in the likeness of God. He created the male and female. And he blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. End of quote from God's precious word. What is the plain meaning of the text and of the word created? God formed Adam, Adam and Eve in a day. From Genesis 1, we know this to be the sixth day of creation. The plain reading of Genesis 5 in conjunction with Genesis 1 and 2 is that God created Adam and Eve instantaneously in one day. God forms Adam from the dust of the ground and then forms Eve from Adam's rib. All of this divine creativity occurs on one day. Greg Davidson says that this notion of God's instantaneous creation of Adam and Eve on one day is simply not true according to prevailing scientific wisdom. Davidson wants to argue that the writer of Genesis did not mean what we creationists insist that it means. No, the word created obviously means, according to Davidson, it means evolved from lower forms of life over millions of years. Moreover, Davidson, as I shall soon point out, will put forth one of the most absurd interpretations of Scripture that I have ever read, and one that blatantly contradicts Scripture when he argues that the female of the human species evolved first, which is called mitochondrial Eve. How should we understand the biblical usage of the word created? Psalm 148, 1-5 reads, quote, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all stars of light. Praise Him, highest heavens, and the waters that are above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded, and they were created. So ends the reading of God's precious word. Davidson has argued that the term created must surely mean evolved. We must praise God who brought forth the cosmos through the Big Bang, a view that he openly embraces. 
Evolution is simply what God's creativity looks like, says Davidson. By the way, Dr. Davidson, let me ask Dr. Davidson a question if he were here. Since angels are listed in the passage as having been created, and since you say created means evolution, why not then explain to us how these angelic beings evolved? Tell us, please. But Davidson's view is insulting to the creator of the universe. His interpretation of scripture renders genuine biblical exegesis virtually impossible. And why must we accept evolution as the best means to reevaluate our past or traditional understanding of the origins of the cosmos and of life? The only reason is because of the great supposed advances in modern science, starting with Darwin's supposed amazing views. What's the driving force for us to understand the Bible today? For Davidson and other evolutionists, it is modern science's understanding of the cosmos. Despite what other evolutionists have admitted about the lack of proof for Darwinism, Davidson remains committed to the mechanism of evolution as the true origin of life. He writes in his book, quote, Criticism of evolutionary theory attacked two points of weakness at the time. One, lack of a known mechanism for causing beneficial changes in the anatomy or function of an organism. And two, lack of convincing intermediate or transitional features in the fossil record. Although both of these criticisms are still voiced today, the mechanism is beginning to be understood with some clarity, and transitional forms are far more abundant than most realize. End of quote. Davidson argues that the findings of Gregory Mendel's work on genetics and later discovery of DNA by Watson and Crick gives the answers to the mysteries of evolution. Why Davidson thinks Mendel's work in genetics is proof of Darwinism is beyond me, because Mendel's work directly challenged Darwin's views of acquired characteristics. The reality of mutations is not supportive of evolutionary theory, despite what Davidson wants to believe. In his book, Davidson goes into a lengthy description of the workings of the DNA code with a vain attempt to postulate the randomness of the, uh, in the DNA code can account for the mechanism of a gradual transformation of one species into another over billions of years. Davidson has bought into the absurd notion that whales evolved from land mammals because of some bony structures found in whales that resemble legs. Davidson states, quote, Why would coding for legs be in whale DNA at all? If whales descended from ancestors with legs, it makes perfect sense that some residual coding for legs could remain that normally is not activated by the whale's regulatory genes during fetal development, end of quote. Davidson wants to encourage Christians to accept the unassailable evidence of evolution, such as the evolution of whales from land mammals. He writes, quote, The most typical reaction from religious people is to deny the evidence altogether. But if we stop and think about this, a different reaction should prevail. Why should it seem incredible to the Christian that God could implant the seeds of diversity within the very design of life? End of quote. I'll, I will turn the question on Dr. Davidson. Why is it, Dr. Davidson, that you find the plain reading of Genesis unacceptable that God actually did create instantaneously the cosmos within the space of six 24-hour days. Dr. Davidson does not accept the sole authority of Scripture on a functional basis. He may say he accepts sola scriptura, but he doesn't. I know he says he subscribes to it, but the evidence is clearly to the contrary. Davidson has admitted that modern science provides us with the illumination of the natural realm so that we can understand the Bible better. After all, Davidson has stated, quote, the scientific evidence for evolution and old earth is unassailable, end of quote. He has stated 
the study of God's natural creation by virtue of its reflection of its creator will occasionally prove useful in discerning the best interpretation of scripture when more than one interpretation is plausible. At this point, I'm going to bring a conclusion to part one of my analysis of Dr. Davidson. There is a part two message that follows. But let me just summarize that Dr. Davidson appeared and gave a seminar in 2012 at the PCA General Assembly. He wanted to talk and did talk about the supposed evidence for an old earth view. He did not talk about evolution at the time. But Dr. Davidson is concerned that creationism, young earth creationism, is guilty of doing bad science. No, creationism is not guilty of doing bad science. It's Dr. Davidson who's guilty of doing bad science. And it's Dr. Davidson who does not function by the biblical principle of sola scriptura, meaning scripture alone. The Bible is more than capable of interpreting itself. The Westminster Confession of Faith says that the Bible interprets the Bible. And that is the, the main principle of hermeneutics. But for Davidson and other evolutionists, they don't think this. They think that scientific evidence, particularly Darwinism, can explain better portions of the Bible. And, and that the Bible writers, according to Davidson, did not intend for what they wrote to be taken at face value. That it must be understood in light of modern interpretation given to us by science. And in doing so, he has done a great disservice to the Christian community. He is a compromiser. He is a dangerous advocate of evolutionary thought. This message overall on the analysis of Dr. Davidson will continue in part two.